Our scripture today, when Pastor Mark assigned this to me weeks, months ago, he didn't know it, but he gave me my favorite passage in the book of Mark and one of my favorite passages in the entire New Testament. I remember reading it uh, as a teenager. That was a little while ago. But I remember being struck then and now that Jesus is always so much more than I think he is. He's always so much more. I don't know if this happens to you, but sometimes I feel like I think I understand him. I think I get him. I, I think I can describe him. And then he does something in his word, in my life, through one of you. And he explodes those boundaries out again and it's beyond my comprehension once again. So we're going to see this Jesus today. I hope you've been enjoying our study of Mark with Pastor Mark. It's been fun. Has, is it going through a gospel like this? Don't you feel like you're with Jesus, with his disciples as he's beginning his ministry? And isn't there something incredibly special about reading the words Jesus himself said? Maybe they're in red letters in your Bible or, or, or not. That's okay. But these are the words that came out of Jesus' mouth. And I want to remind you of something that I have to remind myself of something all the time because I forget. These words, these are not just historic words. This is not like a quote from Benjamin Franklin. This is not just ancient words. Jesus' word is eternal. It's everlasting. It's unchanging. His word means as much right now as when he said it. And in fact, he is still speaking it because it's eternal. So when you read the words of Jesus Christ, don't ever think you're looking at an old recording because Jesus is always live. His words are live and living. We're going to see that today. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful day. What beautiful people to come worship you with. Thank you, Father. You're so gracious, so kind. And now, Father, as we open your word, you are the author of truth. You are the teacher of truth, and you are truth. I pray, Father, we see that today as we open our hearts and our minds to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn to Mark chapter 2. We're going to finish that chapter today. While you're turning there, as Pastor Mark has already taught us, we see that the purpose for the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The purpose for the Gospels is to show you and me that Jesus is God. That's why they were written. So far we've seen that Jesus came and he had a power over demons, over temptation, over Satan, over disease, and he even has the power and the authority to forgive sins. Everywhere Jesus went, he amazed people with the things that he said and he did. Great crowds followed him. Word of him spread all over Galilee. If, if we were going to use words from today, we would say that Jesus is a YouTube sensation. Because great crowds followed him by the masses. However, the religious leaders, they weren't fans at all. For generations, these religious leaders had studied the scriptures. They had poured themselves into the scriptures looking for, anticipating the day when Messiah would come. And when their Messiah came and stood right in front of them, performed miracles for for them and spoke to them, they rejected him and they hounded his every step. Why? Why? 
It's simple, really. For generations, the religious leaders had corrupted the word of God with self-righteous teaching. They had lost all understanding of who God really is and what his word really means. So when God came to them in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, they didn't recognize him. Jesus didn't do what they wanted him to do. Jesus didn't say what they wanted him to say. So they saw Jesus as a threat, as a blasphemer. A blasphemer is a mocker of God. But guess what? They hadn't seen or heard anything yet, as we're going to look today, as Jesus has plenty more to teach us about himself. May I have the outline, please? Here's the outline for the text today. Because Jesus is going to reveal three more things to you and me today that should have us float out of here with joy in our hearts. It should thrill us to our soul if we understand what these mean. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Jesus is the bridegroom. And Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Do you remember back to chapter 1? Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee and he called four fishermen to be his first apprentices, his disciples. He called Simon, who's also known as Peter or Simon Peter, and his brother Andrew. And he called James and his brother John. We're going to pick up in verse 13 now of chapter 2 where we find Jesus once, once again walking along the Sea of Galilee. Verse 13, chapter 2. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A, lar- a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Verse 13 starts with the words, Once again, Jesus went out. Jesus did not take a comfy seat in the synagogue and wait for people to come to him. He went out. Where did he go? Where did Jesus go? Jesus went where people were living, where people were working, where people were sinning, just like he does today. Jesus comes into our lives. He sees us just as we are. He steps into our lives. He sees everything. And you know, he never asks us to clean ourselves up for him first. What he does is he invites us to listen to his sweet message of forgiveness and of, from sin and love of God and grace. And he invites us to follow him if we're interested in the eternal life he has to offer. Maybe you're thinking... Oh, Jesus would never want me to follow him because I'm, I'm not good enough. Jesus does wonders with people that aren't good enough. I am proof of that. And very much so is this man Levi that we meet in verse 14. And this is why I love this passage so much. Jesus saw Levi, also known as Matthew, sitting in his tax booth. He said, follow me. And and Levi got up and followed him. I want to ask you a question. Think about this with me. How do you make yourself popular? If you want to be popular, how do you become popular? The age-old rule is, if you want to be popular, you have to hang out with popular people. You have to be in the right club, the right circles. 
when you're running for office, you want celebrity endorsements. You don't want the endorsements of nobodies and public enemies. Look what Jesus did. His, he first handpicked four common, uneducated, probably smelly fishermen. And for his next selection, Levi, Matthew, a tax collector. Tax collectors were despised social outcasts. In Jesus' day, the Roman Empire hired Jews to collect taxes in the Jewish regions. Some tax collectors made regular rounds. They'd go to your shop or your home to collect taxes. Other tax men set up booths and busy hubs of commerce. Levi picked himself a prime spot right there at the Sea of Galilee where he could tax those fishermen and those merchants coming in with stuff from other areas. And here's how the Roman tax system worked. If you wanted to collect taxes for Rome, you did not apply for the job. You bid for the job. You pledged or promised in advance how much money you will earn in your region to send to Rome. The highest bidder won the contract. It was really competitive. And whatever money you ended up collecting above the amount that you promised to give Rome, yeah, that all went into your pocket. And because you worked for the Roman government, you had Roman soldiers behind you to make sure everybody paid whatever you wanted to charge them. Tax collecting attracted enterprising, corrupt men that had no problem getting rich quick at the expense of their own people. It's not surprising then that in Jesus' day, thieves, murderers, and tax collectors were considered to be pretty much the same. Jews were forbidden to receive money, even alms, from a tax collector because their money was considered stolen. Tax collectors were automatically disqualified to be a judge or a witness in Jewish courts. In Jewish civil law, there was no penalty for lying to a tax collector. Tax collectors were expelled from the synagogue and were a disgrace to their families. Tax collectors were seen as Roman collaborators. They were tangible reminders of Roman domination, Roman injustice, and Gentile uncleanness. In fact, just the touch of a tax collector rendered a Jewish house unclean. Knowing all this, Jesus called a tax collector named Levi to be his disciple. When I read this years ago as a teenager, I could not get over the love of Jesus. I still can't. This proves Jesus loves the unlovely. He wants the unwanted. He can save the unsavable. Jesus came to rescue people like Levi, like me, like you. Jesus saw Levi and said to him, follow me. And Levi said, Oh, good. Where? Where to? For how long? No, he didn't say that at all. He asked no questions. He just got to his feet and immediately followed Jesus. In the book of Mark, Mark uses the word follow 19 times. And each time he uses it to express the proper response of faith. Faith and follow mean basically the same thing. Faith isn't sitting still in some spiritual state of mind. 
Faith is an action. Faith has feet. When we put our faith in Jesus, we follow. We go where he wants us to go, just like the song we sang today. And we do what he wants us to do, or we try. If you're taking notes, you may want to stop right now because I have an observation that you probably don't want to write down but because it, it just occurred to me as I was studying it this week. I wonder how those four other disciples felt about adding Levi to their group. Remember, they were fishermen at the Sea of Galilee where Levi had his booth. I bet you Levi took money from these guys. So how did those introductions go? When Jesus said, Simon, Andrew, James, John... I want you to meet Levi. He says you owe him ten bucks. He's going to be in our group now. You know what? Here's something that is worth writing down. Obviously, the Lord loves diversity in his flock. This always always makes me pause and, and think. Do I love diversity like Jesus does? Do I love people that are really different from me? Or do I kind of try to avoid them? This section of Scripture teaches us that we need to see people through the eyes of Christ, not through our own eyes. I saw an old movie once that portrayed this scene where Jesus called Levi. And the actor that played Jesus, they had him look at Levi with his long, penetrating stare. Crowds of people were passing. Camera came in close on the actor. And then they added reverb to Jesus' voice so he would sound otherworldly. And he said, follow me. And then the camera cut to Levi, and Levi rose to his feet like he's in a trance. And off he went. Really overly dramatic and corny. I bet it didn't happen like that at all. Levi had certainly heard of Jesus because everybody was talking about him. Levi very likely heard Jesus preach his message of forgiveness of sin. I believe Levi knew absolutely that he was a sinner and he needed a savior. And when Jesus said, follow me, and he looked into Jesus' eyes, he realized Jesus was his only hope, so he got up and followed, no questions asked. And this is how each one of us must come into the kingdom of God. We have to realize We're sinners. We have no hope. Jesus is our only hope. And we follow him. We put our faith in him. Maybe maybe someone here today is like Levi. You've heard of Jesus. But you've never followed him. You've never put your faith in him. You're still in your tax booth. You're still in that life that you know is getting you nowhere. Jesus is inviting you right now. Step out of that booth. Step out of that rut and follow him like Levi did. What happens when we follow Jesus? Well, Levi, Matthew, went on to write the book of Matthew, first book of the New Testament. How many souls have been blessed and saved because what this former despised tax collector wrote because he had been transformed by the love of Christ. When we follow Jesus, we have no idea where the adventure is going to take us. Levi was just looking for forgiveness, but God had bigger plans for Levi, just like God has plans for you and for me. I would dearly love to spend more time here, but we need to move on. So let's look at verse 15 to 17. 
while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Levi gave this great banquet in Jesus' honor. Wow, he wasted no time inviting his friends to meet the Lord. And from the description, it looks like every stinking tax collector in town showed up. The religious leaders, they stood outside. They were disgusted. How dare Jesus be a friend of sinners? Aren't we glad Jesus is our friend? He is the friend, the friend of people that do things they shouldn't do. He is the friend of people who commit sin. He's the friend of you and me. There's no indication in Scripture whatsoever that Jesus lectured or rebuked anybody at that dinner party. If he had, the religious leaders outside would have been much, much more approving. But Jesus didn't come into that house, into that dinner party to rebuke them. He came to save them. This passage really made me stop, and and hopefully it will make you stop and think about at least two things. One, Jesus did not avoid non-believers, and neither should we. And two, when we're with people that don't know Jesus, we don't need to lecture them. We don't need to rebuke them. We don't need to tell them what's wrong in their life and what they need to change. We just need to get them to Jesus, just like Levi did. However, it is, isn't it, much easier... (laughs) to judge someone, criticize someone, rebuke someone than it is to love someone. But we have to love them. Do you see why? People who have not yet come to Christ are very likely not going to go looking for Jesus in the Bible. They're going to look for Jesus in us. When Jesus was inside that house, the Pharisees stood outside. I just picture this group. I bet you their faces look like they smelled something bad. And they were just out there, how, how dare he associate with the people we reject? And Jesus gave them a brilliant answer. Jesus was a man of few words. Don't you wish I was? Jesus said, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's look at two parallel passages. Because in Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel, they record this too. Let's, I'm going to put Luke uh, 5 on the screen first. Luke 5, uh, 31 to 32. Jesus answered them and said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's that word repentance. That was Jesus' message. Repent. Confess your sins. Repent of them. Come into the kingdom of heaven. And our dear friend Matthew, the tax collector, this was at his house. Let's see what he wrote, because he had something else. He was right there. Look what he added to this. This is wonderful. In Matthew 9, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then Matthew added this for us. Jesus said, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Go and learn what this means? What a thing to say to these people that thought they were the religious experts. Go and learn what this means. Jesus just told these experts, 
go learn what the Word of God actually means. But he's not only talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. All of us, we need to know what this means. It's not enough just to know what it says. It's not enough to have a bumper sticker or a magnet on our refrigerator with the verse of the day. We have to know what the Word of God means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The Pharisees never did figure that one out, as we see, we'll see when we get to the end of the chapter. Jesus compared himself to a doctor. The doctor is not repulsed by the condition of his patients. The doctor has compassion and wants to cure them. The tragic irony here, the Pharisees were just as sick as the people inside. They could have come into that house and Jesus would have welcomed them and healed them and saved them. But no, they stayed outside because they didn't think they needed a doctor. Sometimes we hear about a person that drops dead because they didn't know they have a serious heart condition. The Word of God wants you and wants me to know we all have a fatal heart condition. It's called sin. And Jesus is the only doctor that can save us. In fact, there is no doctor like Jesus. He's always available. You don't need to make an appointment. He always makes a perfect diagnosis. He always provides a complete cure. And he even pays the bill. One more quick note, and then we'll move on. Some people are hesitant about wanting to come to Jesus because you don't want your life to become dull. Please notice that everyone in the house with Jesus was having a good time. The only people that were not having a good time were the people outside looking in. Let's read on because Mark has another confrontation to tell us about. So now we go from feasting to fasting. Verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast when he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. We're speaking of John the Baptist here. And by this time, John the Baptist was in prison and his disciples were fasting. The Pharisees were fasting too, but not because John was in prison, but because the Pharisees always fasted regularly and publicly. They wanted everybody to know they were fasting. History tells us the Pharisees always fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. The name Pharisee means separated one or holy one. They had been around about two centuries by Jesus' day, and there were only about 6,000 of them at that time, which accounts for about 1% of the population. So while they were small in number, they were big in influence because everybody respected and feared their high moral ideals and strict study of the law of Moses, the Torah. So these people came to Jesus and basically said, why aren't you, why aren't you following our fasting protocols and procedures? Think about this with me. It, it, this took a while for it to sink in for me. Think about this. Fasting is important, yeah. But they were so focused on fasting, they missed the fact that they were speaking to their Messiah. They missed the Messiah because their, their eyes were on the fasting. I wonder how often 
we are guilty of worrying about the wrong thing at the wrong time. Jesus gave them a great answer, though. He said, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Now, for us, that might not be immediately obvious what Jesus means, but his audience absolutely know immediately what Jesus meant. When we go to wedding receptions these days, how long does a wedding reception typically last? Eight hours, six hours, four hours, 12 hours, something like that? In Jesus' day, a Jewish wedding celebration lasted three to seven days. A Jewish wedding always had two things, in abundance, food and wine. (laughs) Yes. The party would always flow out of the house and into the streets of the village. Nobody, I mean nobody, fasted at a Jewish wedding celebration. Stuff yourself for days, yes. Fast, never. So what was Jesus saying? He was saying, my disciples don't fast because I'm not like John the Baptist and I'm not like the Pharisees. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just a teacher. I am the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of the living God. While I'm here, it's time to feast, celebrate, not fast. Jesus referred to himself as the bridegroom. Huge, bold statement for him to make. Do you know why? In Scripture, only God can be called and is called the husband of Israel. I'd like to put on the screen two verses from the Old Testament to show you this. There are many, but I grabbed these two. Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. God is their husband. And Hosea 2, 19 God speaking says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. By identifying himself as the bridegroom, Jesus clearly identified himself as God. Then he said the bridegroom would be taken from them. Here again, for the Jewish audience, this now would have sounded very strange. In our wedding celebrations, in our receptions, in our culture, we all look forward to that wonderful moment when the bridegroom and the bride, they go away. They leave, right? And we we cheer, we gather, we cheer, we throw rice or we throw biodegradable stuff at them and and we celebrate. It's the moment we've been looking for. And they go off in a a carriage, in a horse carriage or a limo or something, and it's a big deal. At a Jewish wedding in that day, It was the guests that eventually left, not the bridegroom. The bridegroom stayed. He stayed in the house to start his life with his bride. Jesus said the bridegroom would be taken away. This phrase means removed violently. So here was Jesus just starting his ministry, and he was already declaring where it would end, at the cross, where he would die for his bride, for his church, for you and for me who follow him. Then Jesus spoke two very short parables, the first parables in the book of Mark, to help us understand more who he is. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. Jesus said, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. 
of all, all of Jesus' parables do the same thing. He picks very common things of his day that everybody could immediately visualize and understand. In the first parable, Jesus asks us to visualize an old garment, like a robe that you've worn over and over again. And it has a tear in it. It has a hole in it. So you put a new patch of cloth on it. Problem is, when you go to wash your robe, that new patch will shrink and it'll pull away and make the hole even worse. Everybody in Jesus' day knew you would never do that. The second parable visualizes a winemaker who takes the wine that he made and he pours it into old, previously used wineskins. And when the wine begins to ferment, the the old wineskins are brittle. They can't expand anymore, so they burst open and the wine and the wineskins are ruined. Nobody would ever do that. Both parables teach essentially the same thing, that the new and the old are incompatible. New cloth is not compatible with old cloth. New wine is not compatible with old wineskins. What is Jesus teaching us? What is he teaching us? He's teaching that he cannot be patched onto or poured into the old ways of Judaism. And for you and me, he's declaring that faith in him is radically different than putting our faith in our religion or in our church or in our rituals, or in our traditions, or even in our own righteousness. You know, a lot of people today think of Jesus like he's just one of the options in the spiritual buffet of life. They, they take their tray, and they come down that buffet, and they put a little bit of this belief on their tray, and they take a dab of that. When they come to Jesus, they put a little Jesus on their tray too, because you're American. You've got to put a little Jesus. Maybe I'll put a, an extra helping of Jesus on my plate. But Jesus is saying, if we really understand who he is, we don't want anything on our plate but him. We don't want to give our souls, we don't want to worship our church, our denomination, our pastors, our teachers, anything, our rituals, our traditions. We want to fall at his feet and call him our Lord and our God. Because we realize that Jesus is the only one that can satisfy us. He's the only one that can save us. I've been finding myself praying a prayer this week I'd like to share with you. Um, It may be something you'll think about praying yourself or maybe you do already. Uh, All week I've just been praying, God, keep me flexible. Don't let me become an old wineskin. Don't let me get rigid in my ways. Empty me of myself. Jesus, you are the new wine. Fill me. When Jesus fills us, he's going to stretch us. And it's uncomfortable when we get stretched out of our comfort zone. But if we're new wineskins, we're not going to burst. And we will become everything that our God, our winemaker, created us to be. Okay, we come to the end of this chapter with one more round of questions for Jesus. Let's pick it up at verse 23 and go to the end of the chapter. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some of the heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God 
and, and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. You know, most of the world's religions have sacred places that they honor. Islam honors Mecca. Judaism honors Jerusalem. Here in America, capitalism honors Wall Street. But in Jesus' day, there was something as great, if not greater, in the eyes of the Jews. And it wasn't a place, it was a time. It was the Sabbath. There were two primary observances that set Jews apart from all other nations. Circumcision and the Sabbath. The Sabbath began on Friday at sunset and ended on Saturday on sunset. Let's look at the fourth commandment together. I'll put it on the screen. This is the longest of the Ten Commandments. Let's remind ourselves what God said about the Sabbath. Exodus 20. He says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Ironically, the Pharisees took God's command to rest, and they worked their tails off to write an endless list of all the things that were legal and illegal to do on the Sabbath. For example, Pharisees declared that on the Sabbath you could not carry any kind of load because that is considered work. Therefore, on the Sabbath, parents, you were not allowed to carry your children. And if one of your animals fell into a pit, you were not allowed to lift the animal out of the pit. It had to stay there for the Sabbath. Women, on the Sabbath, you were not allowed to wear any jewelry that weighed more than a dried fig. Anything heavier would be considered carrying a load. I have no idea how they came up with the dried fig calculation. You were not allowed to carry anything in your hands or across your chest or on your shoulders. But, but, they would allow you to carry something with the back of your hand or with your foot. Maybe that's how soccer got invented. I don't know. But you can see the rules are somewhat arbitrary. You are not, men, you are not allowed to tie or untie a knot in a rope. But women, you were allowed to tie or untie a knot in your girdle. I'm not going to say any more about that one. You were not allowed to bathe on the Sabbath. You know why? Because any water that fell off of you would be considered washing the floor. The only permissible work you were allowed to do was life-saving work. So if you were so unfortunate to break your arm on the Sabbath, you can't set it because your life is not in danger. You have to wait for the Sabbath to be over before you could set your arm. If a building fell down on the Sabbath, you were allowed to go in there and move just enough rubble to see if there are any victims in there. If they're alive, you could bring them out. If they're dead, you have to leave the corpses there until after the Sabbath. So the Pharisees were the authors and the enforcers of these rules that they added to God's word. So in the grain field, 
Jesus and his disciples might have violated three, a total of three uh, Sabbath rules the Pharisees wrote. First, according to the Pharisees, if you roll wheat in your hand to separate it from the chaff, that is considered sifting. That is illegal on the Sabbath. If you rub the heads of grain, that is considered threshing. That is illegal. If you throw it up in the air to separate the chaff from the wind, that is winnowing. That is illegal. So they asked Jesus, why are you and your disciples doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Unlawful according to who? We read what God said about the Sabbath. He made no such restrictions. The only law being broken was the law the Pharisees wrote. Huge warning for you and for me. Like the Pharisees, we must never put our traditions equal to or superior to the word of God. Once again, Jesus challenged their understanding of what scripture means. He said to them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. We're not going to turn here today, but the passage is from 1 Samuel 21, if you want to write that down. 1 Samuel 21, it's at a time when David was on the run from King Saul. King Saul wanted to kill him. So David and his men arrived in the city of Nob, and Nob is where the tabernacle was, and they asked for food, but the only food they had was consecrated bread. Consecrated bread was placed on the altar each Sabbath, and it was only allowed for the priests to eat those loaves of bread. You read that in Leviticus 24. But the priests could see that David and his men were in desperate need. They were starving. So the priests showed mercy by giving them the consecrated bread. What is Jesus' point? Why did he bring this up? He wanted them, he wanted us to understand God did not condemn the priest for giving them the consecrated bread and God did not condemn David for eating it. The rule is, in the, in the eyes of God, mercy trumps ritual every time. Look what our dear friend, remember Levi, no suffragette him, Matthew, let's look what he wrote about this incident because he was there. Let's, I'm going to bring it on the screen again. Matthew 12, 6-7. Because Matthew added these wonderful words from Jesus. Jesus said, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. If you, have no, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Remember when Jesus was at Levi's house and he asked the Pharisees to go learn what it means? Still went right over their head. They never got it. Here's Hosea 6.6. 6. I want to put this on the screen for you. This is the verse that Jesus quoted to the Pharisees. Hosea 6.6. 6. God said, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. What does all this mean? It means something really important to us. God wants our hearts. He doesn't want our rituals not interested in our rituals. He wants our hearts. He wants our love. Then Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We read it together. God created the Sabbath as a day of rest, a day of refreshing rejuvenation. Don't you need rejuvenation in your week? It was a day of joy and worship. That's what God created. 
But the Pharisees came along and made it this burden of rule following and took all the joy out of it. That's what legalism always does. But then Jesus said this. He said, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. When Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, we learned this last week with Pastor Mark. Son of Man is a title reserved only for the Messiah. We're not going to turn there, but it's found in Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14. Son of Man is the only title that refers directly to Messiah. So not only did Jesus declare that he indeed is the Messiah, the Son of Man, he claimed to have full authority over the Sabbath. Only God can claim to have full authority over the day he created, created and commanded and gave to mankind. So once again, Jesus boldly, unmistakably, clear as a bell, declared himself to be God. So this is how chapter 2 ends, with a big announcement, but an even bigger decision for you and me. Is Jesus God like he said he is? Or is he some kind of lunatic or blasphemer? I want to read you a quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying that really foolish thing that people, people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level of a, of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Our study began with Jesus making the very unexpected choice of Levi, a despised tax collector, to show us that his love has no limits. And it ends with Jesus declaring his lordship, his deity, to show us that his power and authority has no boundaries. This is our friend. This is our friend of sinners. This is our bridegroom who gave his life for you and for me. This is our Lord. And this is our God. Jesus is calling each one of us today to follow him, to be new wineskins, to become everything he created us to be. And when we follow him, we can look forward to the promise of everlasting life. Where? Even in eternity, Jesus will always be more than we think he is. Our prayer team will be here to pray with you at the end of the service. Art's going to come up and lead us in a final song. Please pray with me. Father, we just bow before you so grateful. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, for your truth, for your love that you give to us unworthy sinners. Thank you. Jesus, that we do not have to try to earn our way to God, but thank you, Jesus, that you came to lead us there. 
please help us take the gentleness and compassion, the mercy and tenderness that flows from your heart, and let us share it with everyone that you bring into our lives this week and for the rest of our lives. Make us new wineskins that you can fill to the brim. May we all hear your voice. May we all follow you from this day forward. Jesus, thank you that you are always so much more than we think you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen.